searching for Canada's best startups. The Pitch Please Podcast. Hosted by Mike Thibodeau. Give us your best pitch. Pitch please. Three, two, one. Connecting with Canada's startups to learn about their business and the amazing people behind them. Follow along and hear some of the most interesting ideas in startups from across Canada. What's up, everybody? It's Mike. We're back on the Pitch Please podcast. Today, we've got Cameron from Hover. They're a drone delivery service from Toronto, Ontario. That's my pitch. His is going to be much, much better and way more in depth. Let's jump into it. Cameron, kick us off. Let us know a little bit about yourself. Hi, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me. My name is Cameron Rowe. Uh, I'm 25 years old from Toronto, Ontario. I've been building Hover now for the past five and a bit years. We just came up on our five-year anniversary. First three started out as a side hustle, and uh, now we're we're really full-on launching this drone delivery service. I'm full-time with uh, a number of people on the team, and we're super excited about this. Happy to do a formal pitch as well, uh, if you want me to jump right in. Oh, we're... Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. We're going to learn a little bit about you first. We're going to learn a little bit about you, Cameron. Went to Queen's University, did my undergrad, then my graduate degree there. I started off in econ. was in my third, I think, when I started Hover. So it became this part-time drone photography business to take pictures for realtors. Started doing good work and realtors kept hiring us and we got some more revenue, which kind of allowed me to help pay for my master's degree in a way, which I did right after undergrad. Uh, and then the masters are really cool. It's like a, it's a master of business, but it's also partnered with the Applied Science School of Engineering at Queens. And so it was really more focused on like innovation and entrepreneurship. And that enabled me to spend some time focusing on more technical side of it, as well as just having the focus of it. it's almost like a instead of more of the course based MBAs or a thesis. So it was something I really loved. It was a little bit quicker than an MBA at about a year and a half and mostly remote, which was super Great when COVID came about because we already were doing everything online. So it, it really kickstarted my full time career into Hover and let, supported me for where I am today. That's cool. So when you started this as a you know drone photography business, you were an entrepreneur obviously at that time, but not a founder. Have you always been sort of into drones like or into photography? Like what sort of got that started? Was it like, hey, I just need to put some food on the table during university? I need some spending <laughs> money. Like. What sort of got that kicked off and why drone photography, like five, six years drones, like that means you've been in the drone space since they really started getting out there and consumer access to drones. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. I've been uh, as like, I feel like most people have at one point in their lives had like an RC toy. And I think the difference is it was always my favorite thing to mess around with. I would build them, I'd fly them around, it'd be RC cars, helicopters. I would always crash. And I think I would... I think I must have had them for max a week because I'd fly it like two, three hours a day. And then these things are not built very well, especially in like 2012. It just, they're cheap, a lot of plastic parts. You crash it twice, something would break. Oh, okay, it's not working anymore. So you throw it out. The one that we bought in 2018 was more of a professional grade. It was like three grand. It was a ton of money for me at the time. I was like, oh my God, I'm emptying my bank savings into this as like this broke student. But it, it's crazy because you can charge 500 bucks for a video and all of a sudden you really only need to do six videos and your cost is recouped. You can do that in two weeks. You probably do it quicker if you're really hustling. So for me, it was such a fantastic way of paying for a little bit of school 
as well as saving up for the future because I didn't know what was going on, investing in more gear, traveling around a little more to do jobs. Didn't have a car at the time, so you'd have to take Ubers all the time across Kingston where it started, but I loved it. I did a ton of work and it got me into the more commercial real estate side of things. And that's when it started being like, hey, you can do a thousand bucks for a job or 750. And then I remember charging 1250 for a big project. And I was like, wow, this is a huge amount of money. And then it's funny to look back and be like, well, now that's like a minimum. I wouldn't even answer the phone for less than something like that. So it's a, uh, it's cool to see how you grow and shift over time. But yeah, it's really, it really just started putting the drone up, taking pictures, editing it together in, in Adobe and sending it to the client. That's cool. And has it always been called Hover? So when you were initially doing photos and video, was it also called Hover? It was actually called, so our official name is Hover Direct. Okay. It was called Hover Kingston. Okay. And so the incorporation papers, something, it's actually funny too, because you can call your business whatever you want. Realistically, you, you could call it Google, but like you'd get sued eventually if you got big enough. But because we're some small photography business in Kingston, even though there's a couple other hovers that do like job posting and obviously a bunch of other stuff, we weren't, I wasn't really worried. And so that's when I took off the Kingston part as we moved out and went to Ottawa and Toronto. And I just called it Hover. Nice. So that's when it started pivoting into being more of the drone delivery service, which we'll talk about in a second. Before that, did you have any sense or reason to become an entrepreneur? Like it sounded like you went from hobby to I just want to spend more time with these things and I want to afford the bigger and better one. So let me figure out if I can use the bigger, better one to make some money. But did you trip into entrepreneurship or, or did you sort of always have the sense you'd be an entrepreneur and not even an entrepreneur, but a founder, right? This is not just your everyday kind of business. It's a bit of a startup here. I absolutely. I knew that I wanted to do that. I think like growing up, I, was, I had a really great home environment where my dad's an entrepreneur and my family does a lot, even my mom, my grandma, my grandpa. So Everybody does their own thing. And what we call side hustles was more of just like doing work whenever you could. Like you had a full-time job and then you also maybe did like a paper route or worked part-time at a store as like a, a baker in my mom's case when she was a teacher also. It just, everybody's always doing stuff. And that's something that I, I tried to emulate as well. Even being full-time and student, also having a part-time job and then picking something on the side like this. And I think a lot of it is seeing of what, what do you get traction in? So. We did, me and a buddy did door knocking for lawn care service and snow shovel when we were growing up in high school. And that was, I would say, the first kind of inkling of like, hey, this is actually a pretty good ROI for your time spent. What you can do, you can choose when you want to take a break or just not work the rest of the day if you feel tired. It's a pretty unique opportunity that I think I really liked. And then I actually went through the, there's a program at Queens that's called Quixie or the Queens Innovation Summer Center Initiative. I believe it is. And it really was fantastic. They gave you a small stipend for your summer salary. So like the opportunity cost was lower because a lot of people are going to Toronto for these high paid internships, uh, but you still were able to make a little bit of money if you did stay in Kingston and you got some cash for the business. And so that actually was not where Hover was born. We were working on something else through that program. But then end of that, I realized like I did want to become a founder. And I had been thinking about drones for a while. And so it made sense of, hey, you know what? Now that I, I have a little more free time, I'm going to be doing something on my own. Now. And it just kicked off. It's funny. There's two things I want to address. First, I don't know the actual percentage, maybe 50% of the founders I've had on here 
have had some type of door knocking experience as part of their like life journey, whether it's like lawns or painting or window cleaning. So I guess anybody that's thinking of becoming a founder out there, you should start by knocking on doors in some regard. I guess it builds the resiliency and enables your ability to, to pitch. But I want to go back to that summer program that you were talking about. It's pretty cool. Now you said that's not where Hover was born. What, what were you working on at that time? It was a company called Duravite. We uh, took a patented algorithm that one of the Queen's computing professors had made, and we attempted to commercialize it. But it was so complex. It, it was my first exposure really into the tech world. It was a patented algorithm that would increase, theoretically, the lifespan of flash storage devices. So from a cloud-based perspective, anyone that really had anything to do with cloud or servers were like, oh, wow, this is pretty cool. But it was mostly theoretical. And then I think just way past my knowledge. It was something that it's, it's hard as students when you don't have experience. Everybody thinks, oh, you can kind of figure it out. And there are limitations for that, especially when you're talking about advanced algorithms that I'm not, I'm not somebody who really understands cloud architecture or even the hardware of layering of NAND-based flash storage devices. It just isn't, that's not something I know how to do. I can't reasonably contribute. So it was an easy thing to say, hey, let's focus on getting your degree. I got into my master's at that time. So I was like, the trajectory was branching off. And any big lessons you took away other than, you know, you can't just commercialize anything. And sometimes theory doesn't translate to commercialization, but what, like, and maybe those were them, but what are some of the key learnings that you think you maybe took out of that program that you apply today or are using today? I think a lot of it was, I still, some of the contacts that I made and some of the information that I learned out of simplifying really complex uh, technical problems and distilling them in a way that is easy for people to understand was really, I think, a strength that we were able to. It, it was such a, even reading the patent, it just, every, it's like reading a PhD dissertation. Every other word is the verbiage is so grandiose at times that to break that down in a way that makes sense, that no person would ever talk like that. And then even if you had the technical understanding, you have to reread it. Like I would reread this thing five, 10 times before I could even understand a part of it just because it was, a lot of it is simulated as well. And then technical terms, I'd have to stop and look stuff up. So I definitely think the ability to understand complex things and distill that down was something that is probably the most important thing that I learned because it just, everybody has a filtering process in their brain of like when they hear something, what do they actually take in? And so I think it was a good way for me to flex that muscle a little bit of, taking in really complex things and not only being able to explain it to you as I'm attempting to do, I'm sure I'm not doing it uh, complete justice, but even just being able to understand it completely. I think that's important and not just in the year, one ear and out the other, which I think happens a lot when you're reading. Like if you ever picked up a PhD dissertation on something random, a lot of it is just going to go like through. You're not going to be, you're not going to understand fully. And it doesn't, even if that's, you're a subject matter expert in it, a lot of it is going to be what you specifically interested in or even have learned before. Fair enough. So it's the filtering process and distilling process and some of the connections. Tell me about, I saw it on your LinkedIn. I saw it popping up on a few other LinkedIn's. Techstars, I'm seeing it on your t-shirt. Tell me about this. What's Techstars? Well, Techstars is a, essentially an accelerator. And for people who don't really know what an accelerator is, it's essentially a, a program that is put together by a group or even a single person, but this one is is a little bit bigger. I think they've just passed now 3,500 total investments, which is pretty outstanding. 
And so typically it's based in a location, although many have been remote in the past. And it essentially helps a company that goes in accelerate their growth. So usually what that looks like is they will take a percentage of equity within the company in exchange for a mixture of cash to debt to access to network. And so in this case, with Techstars, it it's one of the best uh, incubators and accelerators in the world, comparable to Y Combinator. And so they give you a amount of cash for equity within your company. And then as a part of that, it is a three-month program that runs. And it doesn't just stop for the three months, but when you're in the cohort, that's really when you're setting KPIs, you have weekly check-ins that you're doing, they set calls with founders, they assign you mentors, and then you also have access to the network. So a lot of this is really the network effect. And to be honest, a bit of social proof. I think, especially when we start talking about investors, people are looking for sort of an example of, is this established? Are other people saying, hey, yes, this is going to work? And because I think it really is hard for people to make that leap. When you do get into an accelerator like Techstars, it makes it easier for investors to say, it's almost like you've been pre-vetted in a way. And then as well, uh, Zipline, which is the world's biggest drone delivery company, has been through Techstars in 2011, I believe, in Seattle. So even though it was about 12 years ago, it's still one of the best investments that Techstars has made. And so for us to come in and for them to invest in us and trust us and say, hey, we think you guys are at a level that could be like that. That was a really huge thing for me to say, you know what, there's trade-offs to doing anything. You give up equity, you kind of are on somebody else's time frame, but at the same token, you do get this huge boost. You get a ton of PR and you get this bit of an accolade from going through. I think for us, it was really worth the trade-off and we're just starting now, but it's already fantastic. I, I love it. That's why I'm, I try to rep this as much as I can. I love it. And so is that all digitally curated? Is it in person in, in Toronto where you're from or how does Techstars work in that regard? Yeah. So I'm in Toronto right now in the offices here. It's going to be primarily in person, but so right now we have a dual cohort going on. So there are lots of Canadian and international startups. And so Sunil Sharma, who is the managing director of Techstars Toronto, he has been really advocating for international startups, especially those program. That's something that I think we have shared values aligned with. So a lot of those companies are still based in other parts of the world. Some Africa, some in Brazil, for example. But for the most part, you the cohort is based in. So we have 12 companies here and then 12 companies international. Nice. Well, congrats. One of one of 12 is a pretty big deal. So it sounds like you're following the yeah. footsteps of Zipline, I think you said. So obviously they see something in, in you that reminds them of something they saw in Zipline that was one of their successful companies. So let's talk a bit more about that then. Cameron, this show's called Pitch Please. So before we dive into learning more <laughs> about Hover, we got to hear your pitch. So Cameron, your pitch, please. <laughs> Hi, everyone. My name is Cameron Rowe. I'm the founder of Hover. The biggest thing when living in a large city like Toronto and ordering food online from last mile delivery providers such as Uber Eats or DoorDash or even groceries from, let's say, Sobeys, is the cost. When I see the price difference from picking it up in store versus ordering it online, it's a really frustrating experience for me seeing tip, tax, fees. And in many cases, what these companies are doing is they're jacking up the price of the food to kind of add a 20% buffer. So even if they say, hey, it's a dollar delivery, you're, you end up still paying 20 to 30% more. And for apps like Uber Eats or DoorDash, that number ends up being about a 55% higher total. And the restaurants themselves are actually frustrated because they're only receiving 
uh, less than of what the actual total order value is because of how Uber and DoorDash's process works. And so that was something that I noticed when I was living with my grandparents and taking care. And it was something that was really frustrating because I'm thinking, you know, if they didn't have me coming to help do their groceries and pick things up for them, how are they going to do this? And a lot of the times the delivery times are so varied that it ends up being frustrating for an old person to have to sit at the front door waiting for their prescriptions or groceries. Or... And so this is where drone delivery solution was born. We started off on the Toronto islands delivering whatever you can really think of that fits on the drone under seven pounds, groceries, food. A lot of the times it was actually food. And that was a immediate success there. We've done over a thousand deliveries in a two month span. We hit zero to a thousand households. And it was something everybody loved. We were able to submit a patent for that and hit a number of different objectives that demonstrated that there is relatively early signs of product market. And by us achieving these metrics, we're now able to say, we believe we can scale this across Canada to be able to reach other households and to do drone delivery to as many households as wanted in that's super cool. And it sounds super easy and super complicated all at the same time. So let's unpack it a little bit. In this space, are there a lot of other people doing drone delivery? Is this sort of unique? And what sort of, it sounded like when we talked earlier, you were into RC cars and flying things yourself. It sounds like you hit some frustration point well with your grandparents around delivery service. Was that sort of the impetus of how this was born and, and what else exists out there? Like, how did that kind of begin on the journey of saying, I'm going to go solve this problem? In So going back to 2018, when I mentioned I started Hover, I had wanted to do drone delivery then. Oh, yeah, that summer. I was always thinking about it and thinking, you know, how, how could we do this so I could get Schwartz in Montreal to deliver to Oshiega? And I remember thinking of processes and ways to do it. And so I have been thinking about it for a long, long time. I had heard of Zipline at that point in time. Uh, Amazon had posted their uh, Prime Air that the drone had landed and dropped the box off. So this it, it, the concept itself wasn't exactly new, but it was something that I had been thinking about for so long. But it's so expensive to do this that we just didn't, to be honest, I just didn't have the money to be able to, to do it. And it was a little early, like the tech wasn't, battery sucked still. And so now all of a sudden we have battery lifespans that are 45 minutes, which is plenty of time to do multiple rounds in a two kilometer radius. Our range is about five kilometers. But for us, we were saying this is now the time. And so after I'm seeing some of these challenges mount, especially for senior citizens like my grandparents, and then spending time on the Toronto Islands and realizing they're in, they have an Asian population. There's a ton of factors that are involved in this where it's super inconvenient to do basic things. In winter times, there's no water taxis, there's ferries. And if you want to come back and forth, you have to take a ferry or there's an emergency boat and there's no access through Billy Bishop. So it's a really frustrating thing, I think, to be so close yet a little isolated. And so for an emergency purpose, I had thought that people might be wanting prescriptions or groceries. But the reality is that the last mile delivery, it is something people like having the convenience of ordering whatever they feel like for dinner. I think that was the biggest pain point. And then because of the volume that we had, it just, there's going to be 4 billion last mile deliveries that are taking place this year. And it, I can see why people love it and people are willing to pay higher amounts for their meal, 20, 30, 40 bucks for one serving uh, versus groceries, which if you're buying groceries, you're saying, I'm going to pay 40 bucks for one meal. So 
you have a bit more of a margin there as well. And and I think it just this so storm of there's an opportunity, I have this expertise, and there's uh, enough money in this space for it to be worth investing in. That was something that combined, it made sense to say, let's invest, let's purchase some new technology, let's hire some more people on the team. And and that's what I did. Instead of trying to go pitch to investors and raise the money, I just said, you know what, we have some revenue coming in from our services. Let's rely on that to, to launch and see if we have traction. And then here we are now, a year later, about to launch in a couple different locations. And I'm really excited about it. That's cool. So actually, maybe talk about that. Where is this available today? And who's generally the type of person using this service? And you mentioned fast food versus groceries and prescriptions. Is that still the case? Or are you starting to see that evolve over time? We're definitely starting to see it evolve. We have a couple different locations that this is going to be available in. And I think the most important thing to note is that the hours do fluctuate because we are still in our early stages. If you check our website and social media, that is where we post all of our hours and locations. So like last summer, we operated on the weekends on the Toronto islands, which it just makes more sense you have more people there for us to be able to operate what we're planning on doing is a slight variation of that model which i don't want to announce just yet because we're still figuring out so i don't want to get stuck in one but it's going to be more of a schedule based delivery service for a more variety of things which to answer your second part of your question it will likely shift the model from more of a fast food popeyes type to we can do frozen meals that can be shipped directly to your doorstep. So instead of having one meal, you're going to get five meals that are delivered 12 p.m. exactly or 12.02 if you really wanted it. And so I think that's another thing that I just want to briefly touch on is the precise aspect of delivery that we can do because we aren't subject to traffic or even human costs where you have somebody who maybe shows up late to pick up the order or the people who are preparing it, they're delayed. So even if the person gets there on time, or traffic, or for whatever reason, maybe the car breaks. So those deliveries, or they batch the deliveries. And so now all of a sudden you have two deliveries in one, and they'll go to the other person's house first, and then yours, and you're waiting for the food, and it gets 20, 30 minutes later, and, and you don't exactly know what's going on. This this allows us, you can track the drone on your phone, and you know exactly when it's going to drop the food off precisely within a minute. And so we, on the Toronto Islands, we didn't deviate at all, really, from that. It was probably like a 3% deviation, I think we calculated. So when we would be estimating the time, the only challenge would be having the actual preparation of this because it was faster. That would impact. Once it was on the drone, wouldn't really deviate from the time it holds you. That's actually so cool. I need to understand a bit more how about the, how this works. I don't know how much you're able to share, but I'm just trying to think of like someone places an order for something. It ends up on a drone. You also probably are assuming or checking that it's under seven pounds. And I'm, I'm trying to imagine like what seven pounds of like pizza flying on this drone overhead <laughs> and then it arriving exactly where I am, depending on the areas of servicing. How does this all work? Am I requesting it through an app? Talk me through like a little bit of the, the nuts and bolts behind this. It's super cool. Yeah. So what we did last summer, which will probably still emulate a lot of the successful parts of it is simplifying the process for you. It's going to likely be a chat-based service. So almost like a, like you're talking to a chatbot. And we didn't really want to spend a ton of money developing for an idea that we didn't know if it was going to work. And so that's what we're putting some money into now. But as of right now, the way that you order is going to be through a chatbot. 
And then we will send you payment links. We will send you links to eventually we want to be able to live stream one of the cameras on the drone so you can watch your food be delivered, which we think is really going to be cool. And that is a super easy process because you're we're not having to spend a ton of time and money having assigning people to explain it to you, but we also don't have to create it to do it. And so there's a lot of a lot of what I've been taught by some of the people, especially in Techstars and other incubators, is that there is a good enough where it's like you don't need to spend it. You don't need to make something perfect as long as it does the job. And then you can focus on what are the priorities. If the priorities are their bottlenecks and I need an application to to do that, okay, well then we'll spend money on it. But if we're seeing success using a chatbot, yes, it might not be the prettiest sort of user interface, but at the same time, we have a limited amount of cash. Is it better for us to extend our runway and purchase more drones and hire more people? Or and so this is the trade-off we're figuring out right now of creating something that is super user-friendly, but still easy to and so we actually do think the texting services is pretty simple because it'll still let you know all the FAQs while also being super cost effective for us, which means we don't have to charge a lot of money for the customer instead of doing $50,000 app development, which how are we going to recoup those costs? We're able to do a 30 a month chatbot service that I can program myself. So there's a pretty significant difference, whereas the user improvement might only be relatively minor. And so I think as well, we're only launched in one location. And so as we expand, that's going to be different. Whether we partner with somebody else as well, that could impact why we're redeveloping an app when we're going to be partnering with a company that has already a marketplace. And so there, there are a lot of considerations to figure out at this stage, which is something that we're well aware of. And with a small team, it, it's something we think of, but we're also trying to say, how can we add the most value with the limited time that we do have? Makes total sense. I like the guidance you gave there, which sounds like it's been passed down to you, but I know others have said this too. It doesn't need to be perfect. It needs to be something that satisfies a problem that people are willing to use your service for, and then you can iterate from there. And sometimes just the speed of execution is most important. So I like this like innovative thinking around like a more efficient cost approach to chatbots. It still gets the job done. So Sam here, I don't think I'm in a service location yet today, but hopefully in the future, this feels like something I might use. If I'm on the Toronto Island, is it only to like residences or if I'm up at the beach hanging out with some friends, can it deliver me some food if I start to get hungry and came there with nothing, water and beverages? I can order food through Hover and get it right to me beachside. Is that how this works? So we intentionally did not to have it land on the beach because we felt it might be a little disruptive. And, and even just the idea of having a drone hovering above people, some people don't like that idea. So we have a sort of pickup location that's just off towards beach. And so we're chatting a little bit more to see if we can have multiple pickup locations on the Toronto Islands, because I know Hanlon Point is super popular and then obviously Center Island Beach. But we didn't want to have it on the beach. That actually is something that one of our patents that we submitted is for that, where you can take your phone and it will interface with the drone's camera. You point it at the drone and it will create almost this sort of link between the two using just the camera so that it'll know where you are. GPS isn't really great. And especially on the Toronto Islands, it's actually some problem that we encountered of saying we can't really, like we don't have full LTE in all parts of the islands. How do we get around that if GPS data is kind of a little bit limited? And you can just simply overlay the camera feed with GPS data. And then same thing with your phone. 
to get an accurate map of exactly where you are and the approach corridor for uh, where a drone can safely go above you and start to lower the pitch. That's impressive. There's a pickup location. How does my food get on there? Like, are McDonald's just like dropping my bag on, on a drone and it gets to this? How does it go so fast? How do you get this? Like, this is crazy. So for the Toronto Islands, and, and this will vary depending on the location, and this is where we really want to create something that is standardized, which helps us replicate and scale that across Canada. But for the Toronto Islands, we have a pickup that is located off of the uh, islands close to Cherry Beach, which means that we actually are strategically located where there are a lot of different restaurants and you can have runners essentially go to the restaurants. And so it's not the options aren't limitless. But for the most part, if you did really want something like we had somebody order, we wanted to order Italy. And so Italy is at Bluer and Young. And so we're down by like, how does that even work? We actually had somebody pick it up from Italy, bring it to our pickup point, which is located closer downtown. Then we load it onto the drone. So we do a lot of the sort of physical process of loading it, ensuring the drone can take off. And then as of last year, this is something that we'll chat a little bit more about later, but the drones are fully autonomous. But the way that the regulatory environment works is that we wanted to ensure we were totally safe and compliant, especially because there was an airport. And so having two people monitor on both sides all times enables us to legally be able to do all these deliveries and do it in a way that is really safe and makes sense. So there's redundancy. Even if one person's controller dies, the other person can return the drone to home or land it wherever it is. And so that we added in a lot of different safety features because we want to do this correctly and we want to do it in a way that is scalable and, and in a way that when we build good relationships with the Transport Canada inspectors when they're saying, are these guys doing it safely? Because it is relatively new. And so then to answer a previous question, which we talked about is there aren't really anybody else doing short range last mile deliveries in Canada. There's many companies that are testing larger drones that are doing longer range deliveries like drone delivery. But most of our competitors are in the States. And so we have a bit of a moat because we have all the regulations in Canada to do these deliveries, whereas in the States, they have a different set of regulations. And so us, we actually can go and get those regulations, but it almost is a bit of a barrier. And so we've started building these relationships with the US-based companies to learn from one another and I think also the market's just so early, right? I don't even view it as a bad thing. If there were to be more competitors, I would welcome it because it's indicative that it is being developed. This is something that people want. I love that you pointed out the moat. That's super important. Not a lot of startups start with that or start thinking about that as early. But this autonomous, so you've got a person on each end monitoring it. The drone's doing everything. Like they're just there for guidance in case something goes up. But you're saying... From liftoff to landing, the drone's doing this itself. Yeah, well, the drone has full autonomous capabilities. And I think autonomy de differs depending on who you talk about. There are different levels of it for road-based vehicles. But autonomy for drones is really, I don't want to downplay us, but it, it's really not that difficult because a lot of the, the hardware already is designed for autonomous flight. And programming in KML files and having detect and avoid systems on board that can automatically adjust depending on perceived hazards. Like this isn't new. A lot of these computer vision algorithms and planning algorithms, and we're not creating something completely new from scratch. What we're really doing is kind of taking the best of what we believe we need and putting it together. And then because we have the operationals capabilities, we can test and deploy that in pretty much any environment. And so that is really, I would say, one of the biggest add-ons is our software and the 
ability to kind of deploy wherever we really need to and do so in a safe way that can ensure we're, we're long lasting. Because anybody can really fly a drone, but it's like, can you do it for every day for 12 hours a day for years? And it's like, how do you have the systems in place to be able to support something like that? And that is really, really tough. And that's what, a part of what we're developing. And so has that been a, a big piece of this early stage of what you've been doing is really building the, how do we make this designed for scale? The autonomous, the operating process, the regulations, the certifications needed. So you're getting the core foundation set so you can go really fast rather than just focusing on like an app interface. You're like, yeah, yeah we'll solve that through a chatbot. We're going to go set up all the other things that actually let us scale this up really quickly to other locations. Yep, exactly. Like we're, and there's so, so much to do in this space because we're dealing with both sides of it that we try to make our life simple as well. And, and a lot of the, like some of the hardware that we're purchasing, we buy off the shelf because we don't want to have to do everything from scratch. It doesn't make sense to do so. And then it has a high resale value. We can use it for other sort of services as well. And this is something that we're really, really a big believer in. A lot of the companies that are doing it, they create custom hardware and that really holds them because drone delivery is going to take another five years and your drone becomes obsolete and I can buy one off the shelf that does it way better or does 80% of what the drone delivery solution is needed, uh, but costs like 10 times less, I'm going to do that. And so I think that's the one thing that other companies, I look at Amazon and I think like they built a drone that's I think 90 pounds and that is over the 25 kilos that uh, is of the like sort of small lightweight UAS solutions. And they're paying for it because they're basically, it's basically an airplane. They're subject to some of the same regulations that aircraft are subject to, which just complicates everything. And they're trying to build it for scale. And I get that. And they're trying to build a drone that can do tons of stuff for the future across the, the US and Canada and worldwide. But the challenge is it's, if they're not even doing deliveries, how do they know that? A lot of this is planning. And so I think our main focus has been, let's get out doing deliveries to customers, seeing what's actually important to them seeing how they use the product, how they're using our chat service, what they, we ask all the time, do you need it? And so I think, although some people do ask us, hey, do you guys have an app? A lot of that is a bit of conditioning. And in a way, having an app is actually like another app to download, another account to create. Like nobody wants to do that. Whereas I give you a QR code and a business card and I say, hey, scan this and text. It auto loads a message into your SMS. You hit send and all of a sudden, Three seconds later, you get a reply that has detailed information about what you need. We're still going through Square. We're still secure. And so for us, it's just, why would I spend so much more money for such a small benefit? I think eventually, 100%, we're going to need a dedicated application. But again, perhaps we end up working with a company that already has a front-end delivery solution. And all of a sudden, I didn't need now to spend- Now you're just working on smart. last mile at that point, totally. too, which is the point of what you said you're solving, which is like, short trip, last mile, and there's a huge opportunity there. What I want to learn a little bit about the easiest and hardest parts, but I guess at this point, I probably should ask, like, how much do I pay for drone delivered food? I, I want to do this. So I'm either going to go find my way to Toronto Island this summer, or I'm going to wait till you service my area, but I can just see myself waiting in my backyard with some friends. Just the novelty of it, I'm loving. How much does this cost? And I assume that tell us where and how you make money. Yeah, so the we charge about seven fifty per delivery, 
And so the 750 on the Toronto Islands is likely to decrease simply because it was a lot of setup costs associated with it. And we do a lot of A-B testing, like any service. We tried it cheaper. We tried it more expensive. We want to try to find a point where it's accessible for the most amount of customers, but we're still able to make a little bit of money to cover our costs. And so for what we're thinking about in the future is it'll be the same or cheaper to what Uber Eats is going to cost. But the caveat of why you should choose us is it's going to be significantly faster than Uber Eats. And so when you have a drone delivered, you also aren't really worried about kind of somebody picking up your food, swinging it around, the timing that I keep mentioning. And so a lot of the food always hot when it arrives. And then the convenience and novelty of it, where you get it to your backyard or other, other designated location. And at least right now, that's something that we're really leaning into is there is a huge novelty aspect to it. And I think that's something that lots of brands chatting with because they're saying, wow, we want to be the first drone delivery Canadian company to deliver X, Y, or Z. And that's really exciting for me because there's an opportunity there for us to make money on marketing opportunities. We do partnerships, we do trials. And so for us, a lot of the way that we're really earning revenue is in a number of buckets. How I view the company earning money in the future is going to be pretty industry standard to how the food delivery industry is working right now with fees, subscription services. It'll be an application that you can log on to. We might even add on, even though I know ads suck, but it'll enable us to pass those savings on to the consumer to have cheaper, uh, cheaper delivery. And so in an ideal world, once we get more economies of scale going, it's going to be sub $5, super cheap for a delivery. And so you would end up ordering it because of that reality. If it's two bucks for a delivery, you might order something that costs five bucks, a couple cans of pop, for example, or like a small item if you're cooking like potatoes, if you need that. And so that's really where we're focused on getting to. Up to seven pounds of potatoes. How fast do these things fly? I think you said that, you know, it, it's a faster delivery, definitely to the island than the new breeds. But how quick do these things fly these days? We cap it out at, I think, about 65 kilometers per hour. Wow. And so it, it's faster than a car doing it. You don't have red lights. You don't have to worry about anything. And the average altitude depends on the location. But the average altitude is going to be a couple hundred feet above the ground. So that enables us to work high enough that you really aren't going encounter any obstacles, especially on the Toronto Islands where there aren't really tall buildings, but you're low enough that you aren't really concerned about aircraft that fly ahead, which if we're operating next to Billy Bishop and there's an approach path close to us, that is a concern that we have to think of. But we constantly carry communications when we're operating with control. We have all of the permissions. They're completely aware of our operations and we get approval prior to all of our flights. And so it's the type of thing of our drones are, we're allowed to use that airspace. We're insured, we're regulated. A lot of the times we're not even really, the way that the, the regulation systems work is that for permission, you're just informing the, them that you're in the airspace. And so I think that's a big change that's going to take place that I think pilots are probably going to kind of push back against necessarily, but it's going to be more of a crowded airspace. And so how do you do that in a safe And that's something we're really focused on. That's why uh, we're working with Matrix. They're first company that actually invested in us. And so they build essentially drone software and drone solutions for managing airspace as it gets more complex in the future. That's going to be something is increasingly be a problem of if you've got multiple different companies, I've got 20 drones in the air in Toronto at one time, and you have a company 
that also has 20 drones in the air. How do we know that our 20 drones are talking to one another and that are going to avoid it? Maybe your software is way better than ours. And maybe I don't have any software that can detect and avoid your drones. And so that's the, the challenge of how do you do that in a safe environment so you don't have collisions and you don't have drones falling. And so that's something that we're also thinking in the future of how do we do this in a way that makes sense. Yeah, these regulations sound like a huge challenge to get through and something that you've clearly worked through and have created a moat. I just want to know if I'm ordering ice cream, if you can send it a little bit higher up in the sky so it stays super cold and chilled by the time it arrives. It's, you know what, we can do insulated and we even thought about having cooled or heated sort of a compartment to have it. So I, I think really ice cream, it depends on how hot it is or how far you are, but yeah, we probably- send it at a real high altitude, stays super chilled. Maybe on that piece around like getting a bunch of these certifications and approvals, it just leads me to think like, what's been like the hardest part of your journey so far? And yeah, maybe share a bit about that. I, I definitely think taking that leap to, uh, it, there's a number of different things, but the time and money that it took to take that first leap and to say, dedicate this amount of even just like your energy. We have limited time in the day to do things and I'm putting a ton of time into something that may not work. Is this worth it? And I think that was really hard to overcome and trust yourself and say, there are signs that say, yes, we obviously have to try it to see whether or not that's really the case, because people can say whatever they want. Would they actually their like money where their mouth is? And if we're running a business, that's all that really matters. Are we getting paying customers? And so why you didn't I had no idea if anyone was really going to even want the service or if they were going to say, oh, that's cool, and then continue along. And so I think overcoming that a little bit of it was even self-doubt in a way of saying, I don't know. And you have to trust yourself. And that's what I did. And I'm really happy I did where I had my family being like, are you sure this is the right forward? And then being forced to defend yourself, which I actually think is a good thing to have people in your circle that will question you so that you don't just go off on a tangent that doesn't make sense and say, yes, this is why it makes sense. This is why I'm spending colossal amounts of money developing this technology. And this is where I'm going to deploy it. This is the estimated time frame. And as you probably know, it's like you have to have these time frames on product because it can just go on forever. And then you need to set that, even if it feels arbitrary, because you could reevaluate it at the end and see. But having these set times was something that I think really helped with this uncertainty because the process, it made me more aware of some of the issues because everything takes longer than you think. And so that's one of my uh, sort of learnings was it just takes longer than you think. I always th- I thought it would quicker. Turns out it's about 50% longer than I thought. So yeah. as we know, living in Toronto, like from the Eglinton construction projects, it's like, I'm sure that those guys are smart and they know what they're doing. And still they're years behind schedule. Building that buffer in as well is something that was super important. Maybe in that vein, and maybe that is the advice and we'll just package it up. But any like advice from going through that process to other people starting a business, obviously, hopefully not in drones, maybe in drones. But just generally as like a startup founder or someone starting their own business, is there any advice as some of those things that you were saying were seem super helpful, but maybe you have other advice for people starting out? Yeah, the biggest one is definitely trust yourself and do hard things. I think you have to pick something that you really love to do because of how hard it is. It's definitely a marathon, not a sprint. 
Actually, I, I found training for a marathon legitimately helped. I did an Ironman last year and I was training for that while I was doing this. And it helped me stay disciplined where I, knew I had to wake up early. If I wanted to fit in a run because we're doing 12 hour days on the Toronto Islands. When do I have time to work? You have to be disciplined enough. And that sort of mentality carries over. Doing hard things is worth it. And I think there has to be like an end to it. And so having a goal of we're going to do this for the summer and we're going to see what happens or we're going to complete this race. Or we're going to try to get under this time frame. And this is our training. It's so important. I think that's one thing that I tell everybody that I can is try to, if there's something hard that you want to do that you're unsure of just because it's hard, it's like still try it anyways. There are ways that you can do it that aren't full development. You don't have to spend a ton of money to do it. But if you're trying something hard, it's so rewarding at the end of it. And it just has kicked hover off from this company that was doing well into this company that's getting the attention of some really cool people. And it wouldn't have happened unless I took a bit of a leap of faith. We still have some ways to go. But I think it's like from how I look at myself now versus last year, I'm like, I'm so happy that I had done these challenging things. And I remember feeling the stress and anxiety of not knowing if it would work. And it may still not work out. Like, I don't think by any means we've made it, but I think we've made enough progress that gives me more confidence to continue on this path. And I think that's really all that we can hope for is just a little more information that gives you slightly more confidence to be able to do this thing that you're really trying to accomplish. And I know it might sound vague, but I think the general themes are there because everybody knows their own strengths and weaknesses. And I think if you're confident in yourself to be able to learn or develop something, I think you should just go for it. And just continue trying and make the time and get disciplined so that you are doing the best that you can. And I think being honest with yourself as well of like, what are my limitations? What are my skill sets? I have to bring on some more software people because I personally am not the best software engineer. I'm not an embedded systems engineer. So I need somebody like that on my team, which is who we're looking for. So I, I like that. So you packed up a few things there, just like the mar- it's a marathon, not a sprint keeping yourself accountable, um, the whole aspect around courage and confidence to keep going because you're going to have highs and lows. And I think it's just continuing to be persistent that, that pays off. Out of your whole journey, what's sort of been your most memorable moment or favorite moment in the journey of Hover? Definitely going on Dragon's Den. It was a culmination of a lot of going on there and, and seeing people that I've watched for years and years it, be asking us questions, be curious. We spent an hour and a half on the dragon's den and it's going to be distilled down to like seven minutes. It's going to be like, it just was a really fun time. It was stressful, but it was a really cool experience going in and sort of saying, oh, this is a, this is exciting. This is one of the reasons why we're doing it. We get to do really cool, exciting things. That's awesome. Did you get invested by the dragons? You'll have to, you'll have to watch. Oh, it's still, it hasn't been aired I'm yet. To, I'm not allowed to say they, the, under ah. penalty of death or whatever, they make us. Ah. But has it been, has your episode been aired yet? No. So the, oh, okay, okay. the new season. And so everything is, has been recorded. I'm allowed to say that. Ah, okay. I, I, hey, if you see me. That's fine. Maybe I'll tell you, but I can't. No, that, can't that's dice. cool. <laughs> It's funny because we've had a couple of people talk about their Dragon's Den experience. And I think it's so funny because I obviously love just like meeting new people and talking to startups and doing what we're doing here. Like if five people listen to the episode or 500 people listen to the episode, like peace, I'm, I'm happy either way. As long as other people are having enjoyment out of it, we get to talk about 
this, but yeah. I could listen to or watch like a Dragon's Den or Shark Tank all day just to see like all the cool innovation that's out there, how it's working. There's obviously a pivot around like the investment there and the drama of that, but I just want to learn. So I'm like, I'm real time creating these mini Dragon's Dens where I don't have any money, so I don't invest, but I just listen. So it's cool that a lot of people call that experience out a couple of times. Like, this is probably the third or fourth episode where someone's mentioned Dragon's Den. So clearly I've got a lot of people from Dragon's Den. I got a lot of people that, you know, are sibling founders. I've got a lot of people that like have been door knockers. There's like some themes I'm, I'm finding out here, which maybe I'll write a book on how to be a successful, yeah. a successful founder. Do it with a brother or sister. Do some door knocking. Go on Dragon's Den. It's going to be like a recipe. But Cameron, before we wrap up today, any additional kind of final words or thoughts on your side? And if people are looking to either follow the journey or maybe be a customer of Hover, where should they go next? Absolutely. Yeah. Social media is the best place to check us out. We, all of our social media handles are Hover Direct or Hover Dot Direct. And so you just type that into any social media. You can even do Hover Drone Delivery. I think our SEO is pretty good so that we're any sort of put in a browser or even on this, we should pop. Uh, our website's hover.direct. There's no .com or .ca. And so you can keep follow along on our journey. It's going to be really exciting. We have some cool announcements that we're going to be making soon, some cool partnerships we're currently developing, some new tech we're going to be demoing. So everything's just getting slightly better. And that's a, that's a really big iterative step, I think, that I'm proud of. It's, we're, it's hard to have these monumental shifts. And usually it comes in the form of Every month you make incremental improvements and testing. We're going to be out in the field this week doing some more testing, heavier packages to see how that works. Less aerodynamic packages like pizza, perhaps. We'll keep that under wraps. And and yeah, that's everything. I, I love it. I can't wait to order my first hover food delivery. So I'm either when I find myself to one of your locations or when it's available in my area, you can count on me to do this at least a couple of times. Probably going to become an addiction. Thank you so much for your advice today, Cameron. You're sharing your journey. Super excited to follow along and see some of these upcoming announcements. It sounds like your next six to 12 months are going to be filled with exciting moments that'll keep you riding through some of those challenging lows because not every day is as exciting as you were saying. Thanks again for coming on the Pitch Please podcast. Thank you everyone who tuned in today. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope if you find yourself on the Toronto Island, you too use Hover direct to get your food orders there and as they expand to other areas and regions they give them a, a checkout so cameron thanks again for joining today thank you so much you've been listening to the pitch please podcast pitch please pitch please hosted by mike thibodeau tune in for regular episodes and show notes at pitchplease.ca. And make sure to give us a follow on your favorite podcast platform. Pitch Please, a Bluemex podcast, is hosted by Michael Thibodeau and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more Pitch Please content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemex.io to join us on Discord.